a lot of it is not individual, it's generational. I think that's, that's the game changer. It's one person uh, at a time, but that one person can impact a generation. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. <laughs> Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, man. In person. In person. Here in we person, are. Yeah. Um, I'm just sitting here. I'm, I'm really, I'm really in awe because I know we talked about doing these, you know, these podcasts, and and, and it's, I just, um, you know, when you go, have a thought, and then you take that thought, put it into concept, and then in concept, now we're we're actually, we're actually doing it. Yes, yeah. and I'm and just, we're not doing it remotely. No, for our first one. Exactly. Why why don't we start by uh, how this all came about? Yeah. And then how we decided on the name and how we're going to start these. Yeah. Um, so I think I think for me it really you know we have like, I teach a course called the Race to Social Justice, and it talks a lot about uh, it, it serves as kind of like the foundation for this podcast, and it's really all about how can we take um, how can we give give it a, have a platform for you know, professionals from all different uh, professional arenas to talk about this issue or, or talk about issues of racial injustices, right? And a lot of things has, has, has happened uh, within the past couple of years now, and I know it's infiltrating inside the workplace. It has to, because, you know, the workplace in a lot of organizations, whether you're a nonprofit, whether you're for-profit, um, we have we have guests coming on this podcast from all different um, um, workspaces. The vision was how can we extend it beyond just education, right? Beyond a, a ninety-minute workshop, mm. and how can we um, build a platform to allow for folks to engage in what we what we dub courageous conversations, absent of conflict, absent of uh, um, controversy, so to speak. And so I think this podcast really allows us to do that yeah and you and I have been talking to each other at least once a month for the last four years yeah and the idea just kind of came up naturally or almost organically in our conversations because we've learned so much from talking to each other but one thing that happened with me is I was sitting at a um, after the George Floyd thing you know groups got together and talked and it was all over Zoom of course but yeah I was with a uh, a church group and we were talking about reactions and so forth and somebody uh, made the comment that you know we white people have to deal with this ourselves and we we shouldn't really put burdens on black people to do this for us yeah and um, so we shouldn't really invite you know black people into our conversations sort of thing and and I kept thinking but but it's good to talk about this with sure. our colleagues you know yep. uh, our white black colleagues together and and so uh that got me to thinking that we that that sort of enforced reinforced for me the idea of doing this that right. that it is a good thing to talk about this. yeah and to have conversations that are sometimes difficult sure um and so this is the first one we're doing yeah we're going to do a series of them uh and we're going to as you said we're going to call them courageous conversations and 
uh, this one's going to start out with me interviewing you, yes. and then the second one is going to be you interviewing me, Yeah. and then um, we've got one scheduled with uh, a colleague of mine uh, who's very interesting, who deals with uh, kids with trauma in the city, and um, but happens to be have a former professional athlete, so he has yes. interesting perspectives. And then another one we're going to do uh, is with a woman who teaches diversity, equity, inclusion to white people. Mm -hmm. A white woman teaching a white people, but she does it with a black woman as her colleague. So, yeah. so uh, there's a lot of, the, and those those two we've already done. Correct. And, Correct. Yeah. and so we're eager to get them out. But these, this yeah. is the first one. So should I get to get started? Yeah, I'm, exci okay. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited about. You don't know the what journey. I'm going to ask you. <laughs> no, I don't. But you know what? Um, I'm, I'm, you know, like you said, our relationship has been yeah. growing over the course of the of the years. And I think I've learned a lot about you. I learned a lot about myself um, throughout our, you know, our conversations mm -hmm. on race-related issues. Yeah, so you shouldn't be surprised on too many of the questions. No, I don't. I don't, I don't. Uh, yeah. So, so relax. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to start by guessing that you're about 55, right? Plus one more. 56. 56. Ooh. Okay, so yeah. that means you were born in. 1965. 65. I call my. I, I say okay. I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm All definitely right. a civil rights. A civil rights right. baby. You've said that. So yep. I want to start with your mom. Mm. So tell me about your mother. Oh man, my mom. My mom was a wonderful, beautiful person. May she rest rest in peace. Um, she was a you know single mom, um, born and raised in Brooklyn. She was the only child. Um, with roots in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. So when all that stuff mm -hmm. was going on mm -hmm. with Elizabeth, in Elizabeth City uh, recently, I had kind of flashbacks of when I used to visit there in the summertime. Um, but she was an amazing mom. Raised four kids by herself. Uh, my dad- Where were you in the pecking order? I'm in, I'm in the middle. You're in the middle. Yeah, I'm a middle boy. So three boys and one girl. And I'm in the middle. Um, and one thing my mom, I always say about my, I always, uh, you know, when she was alive, I used to give her both a Father's Day card and a Mother's Day card because she played both roles mm -hmm. in our lives. Um, she kept the boys off the streets and out of jail. Um, we got a lot of tough love. Um, her discipline was unmatched to say the least. Um, you know, when, you know, we joke about, um, you know, when the street lights come on, you have to come, you know, mm -hmm. that's kind of like an inner city type of thing. Um, when the street lights come on, you got to go, you know, go in the house. That That's automatic. And my mom did not, she did not play when it came to that. We mm -hmm. could not stay out at night. We could not leave the block. I played a lot of basketball, so I had a little bit more freedom than my other uh, siblings because I, at least I was allowed to go to the park because I, pl I played a lot of ball and then I played for high school and college. Um, so... Yeah, my mom was just somebody that taught us about value, about um, sh about sharing, the power of love. She sh definitely showed us that, and most importantly, the power of sacrifice and hard work ethic. Um, she worked like two jobs. Yeah, I want to ask, what did she do? She so she first started out working as a, a dietitian at um, as a hospital that closed is uh, Deepdale General Hospital mm -hmm. in Little Neck, New York. She worked there for like 16 years. And then the hospital closed, laid off all the employees. And then she wound up going into retail, working at Macy's. Okay. Um, and she retired from Macy's. Uh, 
but yeah, she was just a amazing, amazing, amazing person. Um, and so I thank what, God for her. What was that neighborhood like? Well, okay, so go back. We, I was born in Brooklyn, East New York, Brooklyn, uh, Kings Highway, in the housing projects. It was duplex housing projects right on Kings Highway. Most of my, ch my, my childhood surrounding the 70s, you know, and, and the 70s and, and uh, 80s was high, uh, you know, drug uses back mm -hmm. then. A um, lot of violence in the community. And um, again, you know, my, with my mom being single, you know, she had a f you know, few boyfriends and stuff like that. And all I can remember is some of them, their character, even as a little boy, I recognize that they were, they were, they were not, they were mm -hmm. shady, mm -hmm. if if I could use that, you know, that term. And so I saw a lot of things. I, I believe a, a young kid should not have seen and been exposed to. Um, when you talk about, um, we te teach about the adverse childhood experiences. I know I've, I, I, I probably had like at least three, three mm -hmm. or four of those out of the okay. ten right. that I was exposed to as a child. It was, it was, it was, um, it was tough times. So. Uh, we hear a lot and seen a lot and heard a lot about uh, that I think a lot of white people never realized before about having the conversation. Yeah. Did your mom have the conversation? Which one? About the birds and the bees? Or no, the, no, no, not that conversation. Of the other conversation. Of the other conversation. Not until I went away to college. Oh, really? Okay. Until I be, turned a teenager. Okay. Oh, actually, I would say before that, when I started actually driving and becoming more mobile, okay. and and having the ability to move to to move around out of the community, that I you know that I I knew most of the people uh -huh. around and and back then we had kind of like that village mindset, that you know if you got in trouble if you did something wrong, before you got home, mom already knew about it because everybody was your mother. Oh, so, interesting. I got I got that I got the talk when I when I started driving about be careful watch where you're going don't have nobody in your car that you don't know certain people in the neighborhood we could not I could not hang out with I could not put them in my vehicle because I knew they sold drugs or they were you know into yeah. into some you know some type of illegal activity um, but in terms of having the talk that a lot of parents have to have now about po police engagement and being yeah. I didn't really, it wasn't that type of talk because when I grew up in New York, we had the Police Athletic League, PAL. Okay. And I, you know, I always think that, you know, that's something that they need to bring back because I knew a lot of the police officers in my community. They knew who the kids were. It was a recreation program sponsored yeah. by the city yeah. where you would, you would, um, kids from the neighborhood would either play basketball, play some kind of sports with the police. It was really a community engagement. Interesting. Effort. So when you when you thought of the police at that age, what did you think? I didn't see the police as like the way kids see okay. the police today, like um, mal with mal intentions. Yeah. Um, okay. Because many of them knew my name, they knew my mo mother's name. <clears throat> um, sometimes I would be coming home from school uh, and getting off because I went to school way. I had to take two buses to get to high school. So if I missed the bus and I was, you know, walking because I didn't want to wait and I saw, you know, one of the police mm -hmm. officers from the 13th precinct that knew us, they would pick us up and bring us home. Why did you need to take two buses to school? I just lived far. I, I lived, so I, I, I lived in South Jamaica, Queens, but my school was in 
my high school, I went to Martin Van Buren High School, which was in Queens Village. And so that was way, way was out of the Was this because of busing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you had so, to... So what was that high school like? I think you said it's all white. Yeah, pretty much all white. Martin Van Buren High School so back then. So because of integration, busing, you went to an all white school, mostly white students, right? And most yeah. of those faculty, all white faculty. Correct. Yeah. So what was that like? Different. Yeah. Yeah, it was very different. Different than my, different than my junior high school. Because my junior high school was located in my neighborhood, and I could live. Mm-hmm. It was directly around the corner from where I lived. You could walk to school. I could walk to the school. The old fashioned. I could walk yeah. to school. So it, going to school, I was able to see people that looked like me. Then when I got to the school, most of the kids that were there was from the neighborhood. They looked like me, mm-hmm. and some of the teachers, not all of them, but you had some teachers, white teachers from coming in from Long Island to teach in our neighborhood. But there were some black teachers, and the principal. I'm um, surprisingly, Mr. Pruitt and his wife was and his wife was black. It was a husband and wife, mm-hmm. principal and vice principal. Really? Yes. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you had you had double trouble if you messed up there. And so tell me about uh, going to uh, an all-white high school and what kind of experiences yeah. you had there, in, in, you know, relevant to racism and what we're talking about today. Yeah, it was cul- It was first and fo- it was culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say. Um, it really got bad. I really, I really knew about racial tensions and experienced my first bout with racial tension, meaning getting chased while going to the bus mm-hmm. or getting eggs thrown at you during Halloween was really around when um, the movie Roots came out. Mm-hmm. When the movie Roots came out, a lot of, there was a lot of, um, I would say, black and white. So instead of Conflict. Instead of uh, it yielding understanding of the black condition and racism and the origin of it, it had the opposite effect. It, yeah, but I don't it, think it was saw from, evidence of uh, of opposite effect. Yes. However, I don't think it was from the white perspective. It was from a black consciousness perspective. Ah. It was an awakening. I see. Once we saw that, you many began of us to be- see other things that you hadn't seen before Correct. about racism. Correct. I see. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You've told me this story before, but I'd like to hear it again sure. about um, your track to college. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I was, um, the reason why I went to Martin Van Buren High School is because I, my mother didn't want me to stay in the local neighborhood. It was two high schools. I played a lot of basketball. Yeah. My nickname was Douse. That's what they called me. What? Douse. D-O-U-S-E, like Douse. Yeah, like Douse yeah. someone with water. Oh. And if you Google Ernie Douse, he was a pro basketball player back oh. then. Okay. And so they said two things. I looked like him, like I could be his son, and plus I played like him. So that's where I got the nickname Douse. Okay. And then growing up, growing up in South Jamaica, Queens, everybody had a nickname. Nobody knew our real, you know, this is how yeah. it was yeah. in the city. Nobody, we didn't know everybody's real name. Um, everybody had a nickname. But there was two high schools. There was Martin Van, I mean, not Martin Van Buren, yeah, August Martin, and there was Andrew Jackson High School that was well known for, uh, you know, for basketball and, and, and most importantly, recruiting to go to D1 schools. Okay. So I wanted to go to one of those two, you know, one of those two high schools, but my mother didn't let me go. 
She said basketball okay. is not. All right. So you you went to the school that you had to go to. Because Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Yeah. So what did basketball mean to you at that school, the school you went to? It, I had to. I was a walk on. I had to. I had to actually try out. I was a walk-on. The other two schools... You would have been recruited to the correct, other two schools. Correct. Just when you were a walk-on. Correct. I was a walk-on. I, I did not get recruited. Um, I had to try out, just like, you know... Yeah. Um, every, uh, all the other uh, upperclassmen. And um, I didn't play <laughs> like I thought I was. So it was a little bit more competitive. And um, it was just different. It was just different for me. Okay. So did basketball get you to college? No. Okay, what got you to college? Miss Cynthia Gonzalez. So tell me that story. Yeah. So I want to go back to where you uh, okay. about the the college because there is there is a, a, a interesting piece about how I um, actually got to go to SUNY New Paltz. There's two okay. parts. Okay. Because I would I, I actually I had filled out the application to go into the military. Because oh, I was yeah because okay. things were really really bad in my community and one of the things I want you know most most kids want to just get out of that situation right so I had filled out the application to get recruited for the army and the day that the recruiter was supposed to come to my house to sign off on the papers with my mother my acceptance letter came for the college of New Paul's wow. wow so wow. I would say if it, if it was another day, another two days, or maybe even a week later, you would have I probably, become a drill instructor. I would have probably <laughs> went to the military. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So faith has it that uh, my letter for the College of New Paltz came the, that very mm. morning on the afternoon that this recruiter was supposed to come and sign up, sign me up with all these papers. Wow. And you had clearly decided if you got in, that's yeah. Where I wanted to see, get. Yeah. It was it was bad. Bad internally in my household and also in the neighborhood. It was it was it okay. was really tough. All right. So, so, so um, what role did this, what, what was her name? Cynthia Gonzalez. Cynthia Gonzalez. Yeah. So she, um, she, she worked at this uh, agency called the Tuitions Assistance Program. Back mm -hmm. then they had what they called TAP, mm -hmm. Tuitions Assistance Program, <laughs> for under, under, under um, you know, quote-unquote underprivileged kids, low income, mm -hmm. which I, you know, fit those criteria. And her goal was to help you get into a four-year college and so New Paltz the College of New Paltz was a, a state university of New York schools uh, yep. part of that school system uh, and she she educated me number one about what that whole system was about helped me fill out all the tap and the Pell Grant applications and wound up going with me up there for orientation and and I wound up getting getting accepted she here. went with you yes good for her yep good for her. yep but it wasn't basketball it wasn't basketball. So and I had to try out for New Paltz too. I wound up did. playing for New Paltz, okay. but I had to, I was a walk-on, I had to try out for there too. Interesting. So I want to go back to your mom for a minute. Sure. Because, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do word association. Okay. New Jersey Turnpike. Speeding. Uh, a trip to see after your mom died, I guess. Yeah, so. A uh, trip back. With your family, New ah. Jersey term. Uh, what was that like, yeah. coming back from Elizabeth City? Yeah. Solemn. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was tough. But um, you told me a story about how you, um, if you'd see a flashing light, there was an automatic routine you would go through. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, I call that the. Um, 
I, I came up with this term. It's called the silent trauma of racial injustice. Okay. And so what that what that is for many, particularly African American males, I would imagine that they can attest to what I'm about to to say. I'm 56. I've been driving since I was 17. I had my driver's license since 17. I lived in New York City at the height of racial profiling. I went to an all-white high school, and then I go to college in a predominantly white community, New Paltz, New York. And relentlessly, every time I would leave to come home on the weekends, I would get stopped before I get on a New Jersey turnpike. It, it, it never fails, I would get stopped. Hmm. I drove a 84 Honda Accord, and the windows were tinted. And you couldn't have a certain hue of, of tint on your windows back then. It was illegal. And I had the right hue. It wasn't too dark. It wasn't a limousine tint. And I still would get stopped. Right? So now, even as an adult driving, if I, see, you know, if I pass a police car or if I see uh, lights flashing in my rearview mirror, but most importantly, if I pass a police car, I have to inter like in internally say to myself, don't look in the rearview mirror. Don't look in the rearview mirror. And instinctively, it's like I can't. I can't control it. I, I look <laughs> to see if I if I'm gonna if the lights are flashing or or if I'm gonna about to be get uh, get pulled over. And so I call that the silent trauma mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of racial injustice because internally everybody in the vehicle doesn't know. You know, I don't show my kids that I'm afraid or I'm scared or anything like that. But inside, I'm thinking I don't feel like. Particularly now in today's society, I don't want to get ever get stopped by police officers right now. So you not only notice that, but then you get ready. You have your yeah. driver's license and registration already, and your I have it all set yeah. up, all prepared. Yeah. And it's something I don't think um, you know other drivers would have to experience that. No. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Raised by a single mom, mm -hmm. and we'll hear from Tim Massaqua, he was as well. Yeah. And I made a comment to him during our the end of our that interview that um, it, it was something we have in common that we uh, I didn't I, my father died when I was young too. Yeah. We have that in common, but I have a feeling that that's about it as far yeah. as what we have in common about not having a dad around. Um, and so what was that, what was that like for you? Uh, you said, you mentioned a little bit about your mom compensating for that. She was both and she'd have a Father's Day, Mother's Day. Yeah. But um, how was it for that for you uh, growing up, but also then now that you are a dad? Yeah. So, yeah. so talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, it really... If you're comfortable. Yeah, you're absolutely. Comfortable. Um, it really has made me a better father. It has made me, I think, the father that I am. And sometimes my wife says, oh, you, 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 you know, I got two girls. I love them to pieces. And, um, and sometimes I have to watch that. I'm not trying to overcompensate, mm -hmm. that I'm not trying to live vicariously through them what I didn't have mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a child their age, five and seven. Um, but, yeah, it really, uh, I, you know, I, 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 I struggled with you know, fathers are a connector, especially with sons. You know, when you see um, businesses that says Johnson and Sons. Sons, yeah. yeah. You know, that's Sanford that, and Sons. Yeah, Sanford. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. part of your identity, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you don't have that, 
if you don't have that male connection as a young boy, you kind of you get kind of mm. a little lost in terms of your identity because your identity formation starts with your connection with another male, mm -hmm. right? As a boy, and plus, like so, for example, my girls are understanding the type of man that they're gonna look for by watching me mm -hmm. and how I love their mom, right? And how I treat them. And you didn't have that. And I didn't, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well. There were men in my life, but they were dysfunctional. They weren't, they weren't the role. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. The next thing I wrote on my yellow pad here that I think is really interesting is that you were a DJ. Yep. At one point. Yep. So what happened between graduating from college and becoming a DJ, and why did you become a DJ? So, actually, I was a DJ before I went to oh, college. Oh, you were? Okay. I just turned prof I turned professional when I okay. went to college. So you should never make assumptions. When I got paid, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I consider becoming professionals when you get a check, when you get paid. So I, yeah. I, I became professional when I got my first check uh, for okay. DJing a, a fraternity party in college. But I was, oh, I was, I always used so DJing and basketball. I would say was my saving grace. It kept okay. me away from the streets because guys my age, fourteen and fifteen, I would sit on my stoop, me and my brothers. Uh, 109th Avenue in Jamaica, Queens, which ran um, uh, east-west from Merrick Boulevard to New York Boulevard. And those two boulevards were highly crime, high-ridden mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. And we lived in between mm -hmm. those two. And so we would sit on the stoop and watch these 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old uh, boys up and down the street on high-end motorcycles, high-end cars, and all of those things. And it, very it could be very enticing if you didn't, mm -hmm. if you didn't have the grounding that we had from, from, from our mother, yeah, right? Mom, the the yeah, discipline. Right. Um, and then we had other outlets. And so for me, it was music, DJing, okay. and then it was playing basketball. And the third one was actually school. Like I, I just, I just, I didn't know it then. <clears throat> I'm an educator now, but in order to be an educator, you have to be educated. And I was, I did not play with my grades. My mom, she didn't have no problems with me. Uh, when she passed away, ironically, we were cleaning out her place and I found all my old report cards because she kept everything. I found all my old report cards, all my certificates, and I showed them to my daughters. I'm like, see, look, this is what, this is what it's all about. Well, now we, we talk about, you, it's your, you coined the phrase the K factor because these, these uh, sessions that we're having are about imparting knowledge about racism yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Um, was it, was it, as a student, was it, uh, did you love to learn? I loved to, I, I loved to learn, yeah. It wasn't just getting grades, no. it was you loved to learn. I was, if my mother was alive right now, she would tell you, when we used to take the bus, I would just ask questions all the time. She, mm -hmm. I, I'm very observant, I would look out the window and ask questions, what's that, what's that? Very, very inquisitive as a child. I would spell words and stuff, or for signs, mm -hmm. I would read the signs to her. I just like to learn, and I, like now, you know, I try to, you know, download at least 12 books, 12 to 14 books a year, you know, and I just like, I just love knowledge. I think yeah, it's, okay. it's very important. Um, so, so what was it about DJing that you liked? That was just my, I think that was my outlet to not get gravitated to the streets. Okay, it was one of those three, it was a fa one of those three factors yeah. that just kept And plus I, I was- and There must have been a lot of discipline too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was good at it too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, not toot my own horn, but I, yeah. and I still have some of my style. I kept, yeah. I, you know, I kept some stuff for nostalgia, but 
Um, it was definitely a skill. It was definitely uh, it, it. It was about focus, um, timing. Yeah, was another good. Uh, and then I learned about technology and electronics and how what equipment I needed yeah. and all okay. that. So so it was it was. Uh, so at some point, though, you transitioned and uh, got a social work degree. Yeah. Right? And and yeah. so what what where did that come from? What was what was the reason you picked that discipline at uh, that time? I wouldn't even, I would say um, it was circumstantial. Okay. Because, <laughs> because the circumstances were, was, so in New Pulse, I'm playing basketball, I'm DJing, mm -hmm. you know, got your, got your girlfriend, and you run, you're running around, and you've missed the deadline to fill out all these financial aid papers. And so there's oh. no way I can go, my mom, my mother couldn't pay for my schooling. Yeah. So I had to wind up. I had to wind up working to get a job. So they had a job fair on the campus of New Pulse, and I actually got hired, working at the Children's Home of Kingston, New York, as a junior counselor. Oh. Okay. And so I so I could pay for my. You know, yeah, of course, I took right. the Pell Grant out. I took a loan out, but there was certain still things are. I still needed to. Sure. I needed a, you know a couple of thousand dollars that my mom couldn't give to me. So I got. I wound up getting a job. Uh, my major in New Pulse was in business administration marketing. But once I got this job at the boys' home, the children's, the boys' home and children on uh, um, Kingston, there was an a, a instant connection. I saw myself in them. Now, I knew, were, they, were these kids that were orphans? They, they, they were, were foster, it was a foster oh, care foster home. foster care thing. Okay. Yeah, foster care oh, home. Okay. And I used basketball as my, you know, as my connector. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so that got you interested in the social work side of things? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Now... So, but you're not, in a way you are, but in what you're doing now, educating about racial justice, that's, yeah. that's a step removed from, from that. So, why that? What, what, how did the, this whole topic of racial justice become such a big part of your DNA? Yeah. And teaching about it? I'm just tired of society being the way that it is. Uh -huh. I see a lot of disparity I see a lot of people getting treated bad. I have experienced a lot of injustice. I can, I mean, every single, almost, it's, it, it, a week doesn't go past that I don't experience something. Even in, even in this, this stage of my life, I don't experience some form. It could be um, from a minor situation to something uh, very major that can, if, if I didn't have, if I didn't have the stamina and the, and the, um, the understanding and awareness, self-awareness for me, and, and maybe mm -hmm. some awareness for the person that's, you know, pro trying to provoke some type of racial situation, it could be, it's, it could be a tough time. And in some days it just gets tiring. But I really tell you, the one that really um, pushed me to this is, is um, in the workplace. And that's why I do a lot of stuff from workforce development. And my focus is there because I think it's just a really, it's a really sad reality when we're encouraged. I'm encouraged as a young boy, stay in school, get your education, and I've done that. I have my master's degree. I have two licenses. I don't use them now, but I keep them active even though I'm not in direct mm -hmm. practice. However, when I was working, every agency that I worked for, someone who was white with the same credentials less experience, always, always, mm -hmm. always made more money than me. 
always made more money mm. than me. Mm. And so I started mm. to question, what's the sense? Yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the, what was the rationale for me being pushed to, to do these things? And then you get into the world and you get into the workplace and there's this huge gap that you have to deal with. So, so um, I could ask this at the end, but I, maybe I'm, I'm just going to jump at it right now. Um, so you grow up in this environment where you see and experience racism. Yeah. You um, now, like you said, your thirst for knowledge, the more knowledge you gain, the more appreciation you get for what's involved with racism, but it's ever present in your life, right? Yeah. And you were just saying how, you know, you see instances all the time and your awareness is greater because it's it's what you teach, it's your profession. Yeah. Um, how do you stay hopeful? Or are you hopeful? Yeah. How, how do you not get just like totally depressed that it continues and you see it and now it's very, people are, white people are more yeah. conscious of it and we see it more. Yeah. And, and how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah. Every semester, every class, every student, every year, every month, every training that I conduct is my way of just chipping away a little bit by little in the social injustice. Think about how we met. Chipping yeah, away, right, right, right. just chipping away yeah. at it. When someone, when someone gets an aha moment from one of my courses or what, one of my classes, that's my that's that's my hope. That's my hope mm -hmm. of of staying in the fight. That somebody, because here's the thing, a lot of it is not individual; it's generational. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but you have to change the individual that's provoking any type of racist tendencies in order to change the generation. So if I can get to that one individual, whether it's you know it's 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 something to change their their thinking about how they was raised. And as a result mm -hmm. of that, they're going to start teaching their kids differently. I think that's that's the game changer. It's one person uh, at a time, but that one person can impact a generation, right? So that's what keeps me yeah. you know, keeps me okay. hopeful. All right, that's that's good. Um, so, um, why did you? Uh, why did it become training that became your way of? Came your profession. Yeah. You know? I mean, you're a professor uh, at Rutgers, you teach at Rutgers, you teach seminars and so forth. Why, why is it that you picked that avenue? You could have picked other avenues that chipped away. Right. What is it about teaching? I think um, that's the platform for me where I feel I can make the, the most impact, right? And, and because I don't, that's why our, our mantra is to teach, train, and transform. And the whole idea is, if, I think that's the, the place where I have the most influence to transform someone's thinking, is by sharing of knowledge, sharing of, of experience, sharing of different perspectives. Um, is I think it's just very, I think it's very important. You know, when I was growing up, there, there was a commercial, the United Negro College Fund, that said a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And that knowledge is power, you know, holds all these cliches, knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. I feel that knowledge is not only power, knowledge is necessary. 
because it's necessary to change how people interact and how people think about one another. Mm -hmm. So I just did a training early this morning um, and one of the persons when we were talking about communication styles across cultural differences and how different cultures um, <clears throat> respond differently to certain aspects mm -hmm. of life. And so hospitality, for example. Um, so it was one lady um, that was from Trinidad and when she would go to, and she was a home health aide, when she would go with the social worker into this, this of course it was a white home, the, the, the family thought that this lady, the, the, the home health aide was being disrespectful because she wouldn't want to take off her coat when she entered into the house. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this, and not just because I'm a cultural trauma, but I just know this from being around Caribbean um, people, is that they, it has so my question to the person was, was the home welcoming? Mm -hmm. Because it's not that she's not, she's not, um, she's not, um, you know, opening up. The house has to be welcoming. And so Caribbeans, they, you have to ask them, have to, please have a seat. Please let me take your coat. And since the person didn't do that to her, I she's see. not welcome in the house. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Now you see how we yeah. did, I came in, what'd you do? You show me around, you walk me around. The house has to be welcoming. It's, but the moment that it's the person, it's a person of color and there's a disparity, they, Got it. we get blamed, we yeah. get blamed for it's the disconnect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Without yeah. having an understanding, yeah. like understand who she is first before you. Now the question is, were you welcoming? Right? So, so that reminds me of another question I want. <laughs> this is great. Um, so you have a multicultural family. Yes, now. love them to pieces. All right. And so how, tell us a little bit about that and, and how, in the context, through the racial lens. Yes, Lord. What, what are the implications of that? Well, let me, let me say this. I am happily married. Our, uh, July 20th will make eight years for me and my wife, but we've known each other for 18 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were friends, you know, friends before um, we became lovers, so to speak. Um, and so, interesting, my wife's a Latina. You know, my, my yeah. wife is from Latina. She's from Guatemala. And our children are biracial. And we talk about it all the time. Like, okay, so now, what do, what do, when they, when they, when they get old enough, and even now, sometimes we, we figure out, so what do we put down when they ask for race, right? Do we put other? Well, that's well, they're not an other. Yeah. yeah. You know. So what do we? They're not. They're not black, African American. They're not all that. They're 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 mixed, right? Yeah. And so we said we're gonna um, when we would put other, we're gonna put in the other. We're gonna write Afro Latina. Afro Latina. Okay. Yeah, they're Afro Latina. Yeah. yeah. So we have to come up with our own category. Right, because it's not. Um, we don't want it, we don't want them to lose any any part of any of their you know cultural sure. uh, makeup. So uh, I think, and they both um, dark. You know, they 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 would pass for African American because of their skin tone, mm -hmm. because they're they you know they're dark, fair they're fair skin. Um, so uh, I don't worry about them as much as if they were boys. If they were boys, then I would, you know, particularly the climate that we're in, I would be concerned. Hmm. Um, but from a racial injustice standpoint, one of the things we do with our girls is they are they are cultivated around difference. 
ever since they were babies. Well, they've been cultivated around different cultures, around different. different oh, oh, they so they, they, they came, different cultures. Yeah, like they yeah, didn't yeah. grow up like with okay. me. And my neighborhood was all right. African American. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. see white people until I went to yeah. Martin Van Buren and New Paltz. But yeah. them, at their daycare, Mother Goose Learning Center, you and, and I'm learning the economy. The, the economy of um, cultivating your kids is important. Um, some some African American families may want to do that too, but they just don't have the means to do it to send their kid mm. to a, a mm. diverse, so yeah. they have to take them to the community center where, you know, but we have, we've been blessed to be able to send them to a place where it's not just kids that look like them. It's kids from all, so, and my, and my oldest daughter's circle of friendship, she has white friends, black friends, Asian friends, and, and in my opinion, that's going to take her further yeah. than if she just stayed in one that's, circle that's of influence. That's good to hear. That's, yeah. that's really good to hear. So let's switch gears uh, a little bit away from the personal side to the professional side. Yeah. Um, you teach uh, uh, racial justice and, you know, dealing with urban poverty, all these wonderful courses that yeah. you have yeah. uh, to white people and to black people and uh, Asian people and all sorts of people. Anybody that want to learn. What's, what's, what's the biggest obstacle that you encounter in your trainings with white people? The biggest obstacle, or maybe your perception of what's the biggest obstacle for white people yeah. to learn. Yeah. So but I can, I, there are two questions here. What's yeah. your biggest obstacle in teaching yeah. white people, and what's their biggest obstacle? Right. So I would say for me, it's not two things: not um, burden of taking on the burden of representing the entire African American race. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I I diffuse that right away. Like, you know, I'm coming from an Afrocentric standpoint. However, this is my experience. Yeah. I can't speak. I'm not here to, to vouch okay. and speak for every person of color because that's just too much pressure. Right. So that's for me. And then one of the challenges I see with, with, with white, with white um, participants in a group is they, they are, and this is just my perspective, yeah, right? Yeah, it's your professional. I think they are afraid to say the wrong thing. Ah. So that's why they stay I think quiet. That's definitely true. Yeah, that, yeah, that's why they stay quiet. So yeah. most most of the time, like I said this morning, I just did a training. Twenty four people out of the twenty four people, there was two African Americans on the on the training, and out of the, out of the remainder of those, only four people were vocal. Yeah. So I had to train myself, John, to be okay with the silence because silence yeah. means a couple of things. Silence means one that they're listening, which mm -hmm. is good. Mm -hmm. They're taking it all in. And the other one means is that I would rather for them to be silent than to say something that's just going to just turn the whole course into a, yeah, you know. Yeah. Why do you think people, uh, white people are afraid to say anything? Because I've experienced this too. Uh, about not, you, being, you in a, being in sessions, especially after the George Floyd thing where people were talking in mixed sessions, yeah. where, where all the insights were coming from and all of the discussion was coming from the black folks, yep. that were, and the white people didn't feel comfortable talking about it, and I think I think it may be partly because of a lack of understanding and, and worrying that they'll say something that will be offensive. Right. Two two things: saying something will be offensive, and then not understanding. Yeah. The conversation yet. Yeah, I think uh, you can't have an expression for, of something that you haven't experienced. <laughs> if you follow, like yeah. for us. Like when my wife was pregnant with our daughters, she said she would say one thing: please d d don't don't say everything's gonna be all right. 
Don't tell me that. That's what she told me. Because you don't, you don't know. know. You're, exactly. You yeah. ain't feeling what right. I'm feeling. Yeah. She said, don't, don't, I don't, out of all the things, you could get me the ice chips. You could get me. But when I'm in labor, don't even talk about, don't worry about it, baby. It's going to be all right. You're going to be, because <laughs> you don't know it's going to be, because you ain't feeling. Right. So I think that's part yeah. of it, too. Like, yeah. if you never experience racism or discrimination, it's hard for you to yeah. really talk about it from an empathic standpoint of understanding. There has to be some kind of connection there to yeah. really authentically say, you know what, Kiva, I understand what you're talking about because, man, I was pulled over by a cop too, and he was a asshole. Yeah. Excuse me. He was terrible. Yeah. And and it, it could be a white person that had that experience. It's the experience yeah. I think that leads really to trying to relate similar Correct. experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about the opposite? What what's the hardest? What's the obstacle that you face in your trainings with black people? Um, it's a couple of things. I would say the first one is what I call the crab in the barrel syndrome. And basically, what that is is, and it happens all the time. Like we're the ones that got away, right? And I have a buddy of mine. His name is Stephen Lewis, and he's in Kansas City now. He's a professional. He does the same work, and we always talk about this all the time. He grew up in Baltimore, mm -hmm. and he always say we dodged the bullet. We dodged the needles, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. drug needles on. Yeah, yeah. And so we're the ones that we're, we're, we got, we got away. And so part of it is that we, that I have to deal with is com not, not, conv not convincing, but making sure that I am as competent as possible because I will get the most criticism if I, if I say one, and some of it could be, some of it could be out of genuine concern, like if I have a, a, a misspelled word on a PowerPoint, I would get, I would get, I would get a, a negative comment in the evaluation or from a person of color mm -hmm. than, you know, mm -hmm. anybody else. Like the criticism could be at a, at a heightened awareness because it is in our nature to see us fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to see other people fail because so, of yeah. their failure, well, here it is. My success is a mirror, could be a mirror, a reflection of their failure or mm -hmm. their continuing to stay mm -hmm. in the same, in the same situation. You follow what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so I've been, yeah. I've been out of South Jamaica, Queens for over 20, 30 years and I love my younger brother to death. He still lives there. Mm -hmm. So when he comes out to visit, I could see, I could just see it a little bit about, about his just like... I wish I could get out, you know, you know, and so I know that some of that success can be a mirror reflection for a lot of people of color for, for their uh, failure. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about um, you were referencing uh, being bust, you know, across a long way. Um, and, uh, so what do you, when I say affirmative action, mm. what does that mean to you? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean nothing to me, to be honest. Because first of all, I don't need the government to, to, to affirm, affirm my destiny. And I don't, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound um, so aggressive about it. I just feel I, I'm, I'm like minority like as a, as a businessman, why should I have? Why do we? Why do we have to have these type of things? 
if we're living in a society where we stand up in games in the baseball games and we have to pledge to the pledge of allegiance and with liberty and justice for all and so for me if we if that's the case why should why do we need things like affirmative action why as a business as a african-american business owner i have to fill out a, a specific a, a, a separate certificate as a minority business own, uh, business owner in order to get contracts mm. why do i need why should that why is that if we're in a country where it says land of the free for everybody with liberty and justice for all those three those those that's if they were true if they were true yeah. yeah so i think affirmative action is is good for those who can take who it can benefit from but it didn't it, it didn't impact i had to work hard for all that i had i didn't you know and and when i say reparations how do you feel about reparations i'm not I don't think there's no amount of money, monetary money, that can pay for the psychological, the yeah. emotional, and the generational yeah. damage of a 400-year institution of slavery. I don't think there's not a, a, a not a amount of money that can pay yeah. for it. To be honest, um, 40 acres in a mule that was that was the promise. And so my thing is, if you didn't get that, now I'm not saying that it's that not saying that it's not a just cause to pursue. Yeah, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna exhaust my energy on that. I'm gonna continue to work hard, and and do the things that I need to do. Again, I think reparation is looking for and my and my this is just my, um, the government to, to again to to take care of you. And I'm not I'm not looking yeah. for that to happen. Okay. Um, to what extent is your life story and your profession and what you're doing? Uh, motivated and all by religion your faith that's yeah thing. that's all i have so tell me about that is my faith as a yeah. christian man that's all i have is my faith my faith washes away all fears um my faith is the foundation for everything that i pursue i get up in the morning every day and i have my devotional time mm -hmm. i get my instructions for the day and I try to execute with excellence everything that I was commanded to do in that in that private time of my life. Uh, I think my faith has brought me to where I am today mm -hmm. to meet you, mm -hmm. because I got a call from uh, can I say Episcopal Community Services to do um, some pro bono work at a conference at the Jewish Museum, the American Jewish mm -hmm. Museum in Philadelphia. It was a Saturday. It was a non-paid gig. Now, if my quest was only for money, I wouldn't have took it. If it was 20 years ago when I was DJing and I was out, and it was all about yeah. getting paid, I wouldn't have took yeah. it. Yeah. But my quest today is not about money, it's about making meaning. How can I make a meaningful impact? When I leave this place, I wanna be able to touch as many lives as possible in terms of trying to be better with cross-cultural relationships, right? And so, my faith uh, just said, just to go do it. Go and where do did it. that, when did that happen? Was that from when you were a little kid? Did it, when, how did this evolve that that's so important to you? Um, ter in terms of my faith? Your faith, yeah. Always went to church. Yeah. But going to church doesn't mean that you have a relationship. So mom took you to church? Mom and my grandmother took and us to church. We okay. grew up in a Baptist church. Okay. Right. Um, you know, but it doesn't. It, it does. It wasn't until I became a man that I developed a relationship. Got it. 
okay. right? And that's that's the difference. Religion, oh, yeah. relationship, no two different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was listening today to uh, a uh, interview of Dan Rather. Remember Dan Rather? Dan Rather, yeah, the old news anchor. He's eight, nine years old now. Wow. And he was asked, uh, it's a it's a series seventy over seventy. Not mm -hmm. something you would listen to, but I would. <laughs> and and. Um, he had a defining moment in his life. Mm. He was a local broadcaster in Houston, and um, the biggest hurricane ever hit, I forget the year, 61 I think it was, mm -hmm. and um, he covered it on the spot out in the storm and came up with it, came up and had the opportunity to think about that they had radar that they could show on TV and he he suggested that they superimpose the map of where the hurricane was over the radar so that people could see the gravity of this. And I mm. think it was the first time that ever happened. And um, a few days later, he got a call from CBS News in New, York, in New York and said, we want you to join us in you know, the big company. Right. That was a defining moment in his life yeah. that, that determined the rest of his career. Mm -hmm. um, not everybody has a defining moment, but have you had a defining moment that sort of steered you to where you are now, where you're going? Career-wise or personally? Either way. Either way. Yeah. I think my defining moment personally as a man was a failed marriage back in 2004. Okay. It was, it was, it was, it was devastating. It was traumatic. I was very young and dumb mm -hmm. in terms of a defining moment of, 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 of shaping me into the man, into mm -hmm. the husband, into mm -hmm. the father that I am today. I think that was my defining moment uh, personally. I would say my defining moment professionally in terms of uh, teaching is I was working in Baltimore City um, and there was this young lady by the name of Salima Jackson mm -hmm. who was, uh, she owned her own, um, I guess, social service, private social service agency and she was pregnant. But she was teaching at Morgan State University. Mm -hmm. Now this mm -hmm. will tell you how I got into mm -hmm. teaching. So I don't know if something about me, she must have, because I did a lot of meetings, a lot of public speaking events for the city. I ran the public mental health for the city. I was a deputy director for the behavior health system in Baltimore at the time. And so I had to do a lot of stuff, reports, report outs and stuff like that through the city and, and the uh, mayor's office and all those things. And in those meetings, again, only male, uh, African-American male, person of color uh, in that arena. So I don't know, I must've stood out some kind of way. And I think my, 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 my DJ skills kind of helped me mm -hmm. in terms of not being afraid in the front of audiences. But long story short, she approached me one day after a meeting and asked, "Hey, would you like to um, would you like to cover one of my classes at Morgan State?" And I started working as an adjunct professor at wow. Morgan State University, teaching in their School of Social Work. Because this person saw this. She must have saw something in you that you yep. just, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. You and I had we get together regularly. Yeah, and we talk about your business and how to bring this message to lots of other people, and hopefully, uh, you you're a born entrepreneur. So I love I love that part of you, which we didn't yeah. talk about too much. But we were on the phone one day, and it was the day that we were waiting for the jury to come oh, in yeah. with the Chauvin trial. Yeah. And I said to you, "Do you want to break and go watch it?" and you said yes, but you said yes with a lot of feeling. Yeah. 
Can you describe why, what that feeling was and why that, why you said yes so, I expected you to say yes, by yeah. but, but what was, what was in your gut, what was your, what was happening? It was, it, so it was, it was um, O.J. Simpson trial times, a, I would say a thousand in terms of emotions and a mm -hmm. knot in my stomach. Mm -hmm. Because you, 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 you mentioned, you asked when did I have a defining moment? I've shared that, but however, as an African American male, I have a, I had a lot of the moments of depletion, like emotional depletion. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. time you turn on the TV, you see mm -hmm. this happening mm -hmm. over and over and over. And so your hope gets depleted, and now I gotta replenish. I gotta find that strength to try to replenish it. And so on that day, I said, if this don't go out, I just, I'm not going to have, my, my sense of hope is just going to be. Your emotion will be drained. You'll just be totally. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it would have just, it was just washed yeah. out my sense of hope. And I probably would have, I probably would have just stopped. Yeah. I don't know. I, I probably would have not even, yeah. not even said, I want to teach another class, another course. Because yeah. I'm, I'm, and this is it's crazy. There's no way. I would have yeah. just been totally depleted. So I was fearful. Okay. I was fearful of that. I didn't yeah. want to. It was really intense. Okay. Well, really thanks, intense. Thanks for uh, sharing yeah. all this with me today. Thank you. It's and, good. Um, uh, everything on this, you know, got covered just Checked about up. everything I wanted to cover. Awesome. Uh, and um, you know, as usual, I learned a lot, <laughs> as I always do from talking with you. So nice. Um, so this is our first. Yes. And we're gonna do a lot of these. Uh, no, well, it's actually our third, but it's our first sequence. That's right. And um, we're gonna break and have a dinner, and then you're gonna be at me. That's right. For our second. That's right. We're gonna tag team. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate. It. Thanks Great. for listening.